Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. That time of the week again, we talk point-counterpoint with the executive director of Reuters Global Digital, and he's much more than that. He is an opinionated sports fan with a brain. Dan Calaruso, how's that for an intro? That's not bad. It's, it's executive editor, but we can, we'll let that slide. I'll take the promotion to director this week. That's, that's it's impressive. Um, yeah, Rick, that, this is um, it's almost Super Bowl Sunday. Almost Super Bowl Sunday. We're very excited about Super Bowl Sunday. Well, we're excited. Robert Kraft is excited, and Arthur Blank is excited, the owners of the Patriots and Falcons, respectively. Does Kraft still get excited about Super Bowls? Isn't that like you and me changing socks? Yeah, it is, but, you know, after you do it six times, I guess— um, he's worried about his legacy as one of the best teams in the history of sports. And who can blame him? Uh, without a doubt. Yeah, without, without a doubt. doubt. With, right. Without a doubt. And on the other side of it, Arthur Blank, uh, a Home Depot guy, retail guy, that's where he made his money. And you see how excited he is on the sideline. But, you know, listen, the on-field success of the Falcons plays a huge role in preferred seat license sales at the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which, by the way, Dan, will be absolutely spectacular. They sold less than 33,000 of these PSLs at the start of the season to more than 41,000. Now they're moving closely to their 61,000 target. And listen, performance can't guarantee happiness, but if you perform well and you're out there marketing your stadium, what could be better? No, it's fantastic. What's Matt Ryan's cut of that? Because had he not had the comeback season of his career, they wouldn't be in this situation, right? I mean, it's a good, you know, Atlanta is a good sports town, right? But they've always had kind of rocky relationships with new venues, new stadiums. I know the Braves now are in a little bit of, catch a little bit of local heat because they're moving out to Cobb County. Yeah, it's a rocky road in the sense that the Braves won all of those Eastern Division championships, but only one series, and they got a lot of heat. The Thrashers didn't win anything, and now they're in Winnipeg. And the Hawks are are kind of mired in in mediocrity, Phillips Arena. This new stadium, nearly $2 billion, it is tremendous. And to answer your question, Matt Ryan does not get a cut. He gets a big contract at the back end of this. Are you you advocating the notion that players should get paid a piece of a team's success? How novel? Uh, It is a novel idea. Um, Is this a public-private partnership, or is this... It was if private the money. city and the county and the convention authority are willing participants in a new convention center that will generate impact by Final Fours, future Super Bowls, not just the team going to one, but the Super Bowl will be in Atlanta in a couple of years. And when you think about the economic impact, it is a willing public-private partnership because the resort tax, bed tax, hotel tax, it's funded from conventioneers. Let's go into the economy. A lot of discussion about walls and economics and immigration, but here's an issue that's pretty significant. The surge in the U.S. dollar bolstered the domestic economy, but detrimental to many Mexican soccer clubs. Liga MX negatively affected by the strengthening of the dollar. The revenues are in pesos. The expenses are in dollars. So, for example, a player bought for $8 million in 2013, the Mexican equivalent, 102 million pesos. Now, 176 million 
pesos. TV contracts, exception is the only exception. Ticket sales, food, beverages, paid in pesos. It's a big issue if you're a Mexican sports entrepreneur. I, I'll agree with you. I would even argue further that I don't know if it necessarily a strong dollar is a great thing for the U.S. economy if you look at exports and the like. But let's look at this. If NAFTA comes under extreme pressure, the kind of pressure we're expecting, what does that do to the Mexican economy, the sponsors of these soccer clubs, the cities that support them, the fan bases underneath them? There's a structural issue there. You know, NAFTA did many things. It eroded the U.S. middle class, but it did also develop a, a deeper middle class in Mexico. And I would imagine these are the fans, these are the viewers, these are the jersey buyers. The currency is almost the tip of the iceberg here, isn't it? Yes, and very good point. Uh, Mexico City, Monterey, uh, always supported their soccer because there were enough people just by volume. But Juarez, other cities like that, uh, we know that they've now entered into the newer league, which is the more expensive barrier to entry. So there is going to be a very tight leash in the future on how to make the Mexican sports entrepreneur successful. And, Dan, even more important is there is a joint opportunity for Mexico, Canada, U.S. to bid successfully on things. The U.S. Olympic bid in L.A. for 2024, we'll talk about it in a minute. Right. But also World Cup 2026, everybody expects North America to get in the rotation with a joint bid. And if NAFTA's undone and there's a lot of emotional angst about it, right. do we really have a great opportunity for Mexico, Canada, U.S. to go kumbaya into the night? Great point, Rick, because uh, people don't think of that. But it is, it, it's going to require some partnership on spending, on marketing, on just getting it done, because these bids are not easy, right? So I, I think it's a... I think it's going to be something worth watching uh, on a lot of different fronts. Yeah, and let's look at something that's worth watching in another context. We're talking about soccer as a Mexican sport. Soccer in the U.S., looking pretty good. Target, heavy investment in the MLS, a multi-year deal to become an official partner of the league. The Minnesota-based retailer will also be on the front of the new expansion Minnesota United jerseys. And for a consumer brand like Target, television, stadiums, ownership to connect with MLS, it's a big deal for American soccer. I think this is a great move by Target. And I, I think the idea that Target sells to families, right? Target sells to the middle class, the decidedly middle class. When you look at the MLS fan base right now, I would imagine it skews very heavily toward families and very heavily toward new or second-generation immigrants who have come with a tradition of soccer, whether it be from Africa, from Latin America, or from Europe. And I think that there's a, it's a great move by Target. It puts them in the sweet spot of, of its demographic. And I, I just think it's a, it's a good move for both sides. It's a nice little kiss to get on a jersey. And, you know, you don't think of Target as that kind of sponsor, and it's nice to see. And that's the cake. Here's the icing. Very rare that a headquarters city sponsor will have an opportunity to do a league-wide deal that includes being the basically title name jersey sponsor of an expansion franchise in their backyard. So, when in, in the, right, their their home, a little home cooking. Yeah, sure. and when, so when Minnesota plays in the existing stadium, then moves into its new stadium, Target will be right there. Let's talk about L.A. The West Coast orientation of the L.A. 2024 bid. $270 million Coliseum renovation. Uh, they're going to do the opening ceremonies at the new venue, the Memorial Coliseum, and the closing ceremonies in the new Inglewood NFL venue, $2.6 million 
billion dollars, and the region will capitalize on its biggest legacy, which is they've held successful games before, and you don't have to pay a lot for infrastructure. So kudos to L.A. for the 2024 bid. Well, maybe maybe by then those two dog teams who have moved to L.A. will have some playoff games, too. So the stadium will be broken in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right about that. And that is, you know, that's a typical response. But, We're talking about a 30-year debt, and you're worried about what are they doing for me lately. You know, you're, you're, I know, you have no I know. patience. No patience whatsoever. None. No patience. No, but I do. But look, look if you're going to build a new stadium and you're a city like L.A., and that that money is going to go into a lot of corporate money around. You, you, if there's an Olympics bid to be to be made, and especially in the dynamic you and I have talked about on this show several times, um, established cities with infrastructure in place that can handle this without going into generational debt, it's a good move. It's a good move. Well, and they're also emphasizing international, but also avoid been there, done that. The Coliseum will have a giant facelift, which is great, but to end the games in an entirely different stadium, which is unlike any other bid where you open and close in the same place. And a new stadium being, regardless of the dog teams, the three, you know, two and a half billion dollar stadium, it's a great deal. Well, Rick, while we're on the Olympics, why don't we go back a minute to about two weeks ago on our prediction show when somebody, a very wise man, I believe, said that Alibaba would make a big splash in sports business in 2017. This week, the company announced it's going to be a major sponsor, a major Olympic sponsor, media rights, the whole deal. It's a major statement by Jack Ma, but I just wanted to take a second for a victory lap uh, around that one. Here's what I said. The idea of a structure in place to give Twitter and Amazon and Facebook and YouTube the opportunity to bid in the open market, the NFL is going to do just fine because of exactly this. Okay, I'll make one prediction that in this vein, Alibaba. We're not talking about Alibaba. Alibaba comes in and, and disrupts something this year in professional American sports. That's gonna, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm throwing Alibaba out there because they are in that mode and they are outside of the establishment that you just talked about. I predicted it, and two weeks later, it actually happened. I, you know, Alibaba was so well positioned to spend money in a prime, prime area. They so desperately want to be seen as a global corporate powerhouse. It made sense they were going to do something, whether it was on the rights front or whether it was on media carriage. And they, they just, I, I called it and I didn't know it was going to happen that quickly. I wish I had, I wish I had, but I knew it was going to happen in 2017. I had a feeling and uh, Jack Ma delivered. Uh, I'll have to send him a little thank you card for making me look smart for once, which on this show is rare because I'm matched up with you. All right, it's quick. Thank God. The victory lap is over. And now we get to somebody who had not only a 10-year career as a plates kicker for the San Diego Chargers, which is relevant, by the way. Now the L.A. Chargers, they better look good in that new stadium we just talked about. Comeback player of the year. More important than that, he had inflammatory bowel disease. He almost lost his life. It's a great comeback. He wrote a great book. He is now the definitive charitable spokesman in San Diego. He speaks about what it means to lose the Chargers. He speaks about what it almost means to lose his life. And he talks about the merging of sports, society, and charity. Great kicker, great businessman, even a better human being, Ralph Benershka. I am pleased and honored. I've been excited about this interview for a while since my executive vice president, uh, Carlos Swadek, uh, set this up uh, for me. And um, we have somebody who had a 10-year career as a place kicker, third most accurate kicker in NFL history with the Chargers, Pro Bowl, Comeback Player of the Year, Wizard White Award, 
Chargers Hall of Fame. Broke my damn heart as a Dolphin fan a number of times, but he did miss a couple, but he made many, many more, and that's maybe 5% of what his life is all about. Rolf Benerski, how's that for a beginning of an introduction? Well, Rick, thanks for having me on. You know, I was raised in a medical family. My dad was a medical school professor at Dartmouth, and then where I grew up and, you know, was a hockey player and skier and tennis player. And then he moved us to to San Diego without without asking us kids because he was joined this really turned on research department at UCSD, a fledgling medical school. And that changed my life in every way. Um, and I'm still trying to earn his respect after having spent 10 years in the league. It's funny how it works out. You were, were very sick for a very long period of time. It inspired one of the great comebacks. You created great comebacks. You wrote Alive and Kicking. Tell us a little about the the biggest valley in your life and how you turn it into a peak. Yeah, so I was one of those reluctant athletes. We were sort of teasing, but I, I did grow up in this academic medical family and ended up going to Davis, UC Davis, to study zoology, having during, turned down scholarship opportunities to kick at, at really major institutions. When I went to my dad and said, you know, they want me to go to USC to kick, and dad was an immigrant and, and very involved in academics. And, you, know, well, you know, that's not why I go to college. And of course, I didn't know if I was really good or not. I just played my senior year in high school. And so I chose Davis, didn't uh, sign up to play football. And and uh, funny story, I get called a week into my classes, and, and it was the head football coach there. And he goes, you know, I was just berated uh, by the coach at SC suggesting I'm paying players to come to Davis. You know, wh- what are you doing up there? And, of course, the coach at Davis at the time, Jim Soaker, who was legendary, became an extraordinary coach, set an NCAA record 20 straight conference championships, but was relatively new at the time, said, of course we don't you know, pay players because we don't even give scholarships. But who are you talking about? And coach at SC, well, we recruited this kicker, and he chose Davis over SC. Surely you must be doing something illegal. And uh, Jim Soaker, smart guy, said, well, what's his name? And got my name and tracked me down and actually talked me into playing football and, and really changed my life in every way. But where my life became significant, I think, in, in the question you're asking is that I ended up with the Chargers and uh, in my second season was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, originally Crohn's disease and, and several surgeries later, uh, ulcerative colitis. But it was right at the beginning of my second season. This is 1978. And as you know, football is a violent sport. And I'm a kicker, so hardly a football player. And for all intents and purposes, I had you know a stomach ache with diarrhea and guys around me are tearing knees and shoulders and getting concussed. And so I kind of kept my head down and and did the best I could to get through the season. Uh, but by the last month of the season, I was literally playing the game on Sunday. Sunday night, they would take me to a hospital, put a central IV my, uh, line in my neck. I'd, I'd kind of be there all week, couldn't eat anything. They'd pull it out. I'd go to the team meeting on Saturday night, play the game on Sunday, and then re- resume that uh, process again Sunday night at the hospital. So it was a brutal time. Um, we didn't know much about inflammatory bowel disease. The treatments were not very good. We finished the season. Our team was just getting good. And as you know, there's only one kicker. You're either starting or unemployed. And I didn't want to be unemployed. I loved what I was doing. Our team was good. There was an extraordinary connection with the community. This was when Don Correll was our head coach and Dan Fouts was a quarterback. And we had players like Kellen Winslow and Charlie Joyner and Chuck Muncie. And we're kind of rewriting offensive playbooks. And as a kicker, I got a lot of chances to participate, so I loved it. Tried to come back in my third season and, and uh, collapsed on a team flight on the way home. My colon had started to perforate. They landed the plane. I had an emergency surgery, and 
there were complications. I had a second surgery six days later. I'm now 65 pounds below my weight. And in the same hospital where my dad is working, they're basically coming to him after the surgery saying, we're not sure your son's going to survive the night. I was septic. I woke up with two ostomy bags on my side and would spend uh, almost six weeks in intensive care unit and just extraordinarily lucky. I got great medical care there to live. And then I woke up and say, why did I live? I, I, I think I would have preferred to die because in my mind, there was no reason to live. I, I assume because of the condition I was in with these ostomy appliances on my side, I couldn't play the sports I loved. I was a tennis player and a skier and a hockey player and a scuba diver. I think I'll never do that. I'm making my living as a professional football player. Nobody's ever played with an ostomy. I'm sure I'm never doing that. And I was single at the time, 24. And I like girls, and I'm going, I'm sure never doing that again. Why didn't I just die? And, and I went through a really difficult time and was extraordinarily lucky to discover that all those fears actually didn't happen. I could end up playing all those things, return to play seven more years, and four of those with ostomy bags, I would have subsequent surgeries to get rid of them. And I'm now married just to a stunning gal that we've been married for 28 years and love my life. So I'm an extraordinary lucky guy, Rick. It's an incredible story. The, the world that you had to survive was just, just absolutely incredible. So we'll get back to football in a few minutes. So, so off of that, and once you realize that you had a 10-year career and you had a platform and a pulpit, tell me about Legacy Health Strategies, what it is, how you founded it, and what you're doing. Yeah, well, the, the first thing, I, you know, I, I had an agent back then named Lee Steinberg who was really a revolutionary guy who was a, an idealist, and I was a brand-new client of his, and he was brand-new in the business, and we were both pretty idealistic, but he, he made me appreciate that I had a platform now as an athlete, and my passion was wildlife. I had spent a summer living in South Africa after my senior year in, in high school. I was involved where they saved the white rhino on rhino capture, darting uh, white rhinos. I mean, it's just right out of the movies, really. And in the off-seasons uh, in college, I worked at the San Diego Zoo in the research department there. And in the, even when I was playing football, I was involved with the zoo. In fact, created a program called Kicks for Critters, where for every field goal I kicked, I donated to the research center at the zoo and raised awareness of endangered species and got the community to do it. And, you know, way back then, we, you know, we raised, you know, a million and a half dollars during my career and, and really made the community much more aware of endangered species. But where my life changed was when I was able to return to play in the National Football League, a lot was written about the comeback of this player. And wherever I would appear, this is 1980 now, pre-internet, uh, oftentimes, especially the first couple of years back, the sports writer would write in the, in the area where we were going to play, Denver, Dallas, Seattle, about what I had gone through. And wherever that letter appeared or that, that article appeared, patients or family members of patients would read it and I would come back to the locker room the next week, and there'd be 50 letters in my locker. Rolf Benershka, usually misspelled, San Diego Charger, San Diego, California. And the letters would almost all be the same. Dear Rolf, how can you play football with an ostomy? I'm trying to. And it was like a fill in the blank. Go to school. Mm -hmm. Go to work. Be a dad. And I was the beneficiary of a brand-new technology, brand-new company. And so... I, I reached out to them and said, we need to do something. I'm getting all these letters. Nobody's talking about it. It's the quintessential closet illness. And so created for them a program called Great Comebacks, which was 
a way for patients to share their stories about what they were doing after their ostomy surgery. And we discovered that this restrictive lifestyle that we all thought we would live in when you're lying there in the hospital bed saying, I'd rather die than live with a bag, just wasn't true. I mean, we found police officers that returned to the force, firefighters, triathletes. We have a guy that climbed Mount Everest with an ileostomy bag. The first call I get almost two, two weeks after launching the program was from a nurse in Denver. She goes, I don't really like you. I'm a Broncos fan, but I have a professional golfer in my hospital bed who says he would rather die than live with a bag. Can you call him? And I said, of course, who is it? And it was Al Geiberger. So that was the beginning. We literally have connected with thousands of ostomy patients and provided them hope and inspiration that this was not the end of their life, but, but really a second chance at their life. And, and we all live it a little differently and with a little more gratitude having gone through this. You know, everybody talks about role models and athletes as role models. What's your reaction from a emotional perspective, but this is a business show, to the Charles Barkleys of the world who, who claim that uh, you know, an athlete's not a role model and it's up to each individual to figure it out themselves, uh, or stated more positively, what, what's your view of the of the obligation of a professional athlete who has played, does he, should he, should he give back? Does he have to give back? What's your feel of, feeling about that? Yeah, I have pretty strong opinions about it. I, I think by default we are. I think we're in the news. We get all the privileges of, of the coverage that goes on. And so I think you, abje- you abdicate your responsibility if you say, I, I don't have to be a role model. I think we, we clearly recognize that what we say and do is reported. And so with that comes an obligation and a, and a responsibility to use that wisely. Now, I, I can't speak for everybody else. I just think we have an extraordinary opportunity to play a sport for, for, that we love and get paid for it and the opportunity to do real good with it. And why wouldn't you? Um, I, I just, I, you know, with the intentionality, you can do extraordinary good that, that will change your life. I mean, not only do you do good for others, but you get so much back. I mean, it, it is humbling for me to hear from a patient who's really struggling and to be able to reach out, write them a letter, call them, send them one of the books that I've written, and then hear from them six months later and say, you fundamentally changed my life. And you go, oh, my gosh, that is humbling stuff. And, and then to get to meet them. I mean, <clears throat> we, we got – I've got to tell you one quick story because this just gives me you – know, my hair stand up. I got a call once from an Army Black Hawk helicopter pilot 41-year-old guy who loved what he does, served three times overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq, and was so qualified he was a teacher of how to fly these Black Hawk helicopters. Well, he writes me and says, you know, I, I went through this difficult time. I had ulcerative colitis, got working worse and worse, began to have accidents in my flight suit. Um, can you help me? And so I reached out and I said, absolutely. And he tells me the rest of the story. He goes, uh, I had to go to the, team, the, the, uh, the physician, the military physician. They said, you need surgery. You're going to end up with an ileostomy bag. And the regulations say we have to, you know, wave you out of the military, discharge you, honor or discharge you. And he goes to the guy, I knew you would say that, but would you read, please read one of these books? And it was one of our books, Great Comebacks from Ostomy Surgery. So the guy reads it, invites the pilot back in a week later and says, if these guys can do all these things, play professional golf, play professional football, do triathlons, go back to the you know, firefighting force. President Bush's youngest brother has an ostomy. Why can't you fly Blackhawks again? And he goes, well, I can. 
So the military examiner says, well, come back after you recover from your surgery. The guy comes back. They put him through all his physical tests, and the, phys- and the physician waves him back into the military, and he resumes his career. And a year later, he sends me a flag from Afghanistan flown over his camp on one of his Black Hawk helicopters to thank me for what I had done. And it's just not me, but it's what we had done with our program. And I'm with, with him, a friend of his today, called me out of the blue from Saudi Arabia. He's a contractor now in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he gave this guy his life back. And I, I mean, I hear that several times a week. I mean, that's heady stuff. And also, it's not just being in a position to do good, but, but it's actually doing good. And, and you're there, and you've done it. And it kind of leads me to my almost final question, and this, we could do this for hours, and it's a, you, know, you are an inspiration. What's it like you live in Del Mar, and you're going to see the team pack up the moving vans and go up the coast? And we don't have to get into did the Spanos family do all they could to do a stadium in L.A., that, that, in, in, uh, in, in Mission Valley, in San Diego. That's for another another show but what did the team mean to san diego how do you feel about um let's say from a business from an emotional perspective the the team packing up and moving to la well it's a it's a question with a lot of tentacles but i'll, I'll tell you first of all i'm a i'm a hugely biased fan because i played for the team they changed my life they gave me extraordinary opportunities and i watched this city love this team unconditionally so my feeling about it in general is that the owners think they own the team, but the community believes they own the team and that the physical owners are really just stewards. And so when, when a, you know, a team moves, the fans feel just incredibly violated, and, and that's the case here. The impact that's not measured is all of the things that happen when a community gets touched by a team, the players that are going out and speaking at schools and igniting in a young kid the vision that he might someday be able to do this. The connection a father makes with a son or daughter, bringing them to a game for the first time and establishing a lifelong memory that gets built on as those teams continue to stay there and the, those kids grow and, and, and continue to connect with the, the team. And then there's the philanthropic aspect. So when I went through my illness, there was a spontaneous response to replace the blood that I used. I needed 80 units of blood. And a secretary at the Chargers saw that, had volunteered once in her life at the blood bank, and so called the radio station that covered our team and said, we need to replace the blood. Radio station in two days sent out a little you know, on-air blurb, and 1,000 people showed up, waited four hours to give blood. And then the Chargers and the blood bank got together and for 38 years have held the Chargers blood drive. And annually, it's the largest collection of blood in the country. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. And it comes the week before Thanksgiving at a time when the blood bank is critically in need of donations. People typically don't donate as the holidays come about. And a lot of elective surgeries are initiated then. So this community connection with the city and the team and the resultant um, benefactor, the, the blood bank, and then we, we actually did the numbers. It's two Qualcomm stadiums full of people that have received blood in San Diego from the blood drive. That's an enormous impact that you really can't measure. But now that goes away, um, and there are dozens and dozens of those kinds of outreaches that are going to leave the city. And it's a perspective that uh, 
you have so many other perspectives, but that one seems to be pretty darn compelling. We just have a, a minute, and it's a question that I need to ask, given where we are with the NFL today. We had a kicker who, Chris Boswell, of the Steelers single-handedly basically win a game with six field goals, the most ever in postseason play just recently. And you've had kickers last year miss a 20-yarder in a playoff game against Seattle, albeit with the elements. Uh, Obviously, the bigger spotlight on playoff kickers, but your position is unlike any other in the league as far as, or sports, as far as sudden victory and sudden defeat. won't say sudden death, but give us your your mental outlook or your overall perspective on what it was like to be a kicker in the National Football League? Yeah, it's a great question. I, the kickers are so good today, and the pressure is extraordinary. And what we saw this weekend was just an amazing display of, of kickers. Mason Crosby was just so clutch. I, let me get one thing off my chest, Rick. I think it is wrong to have a coach stand next to the referee on the sideline and yeah, half a second before the snapper set snaps and call timeout, knowing that the ball is going to be snapped, the kicker is going to kick it, and it's going to force him to re it. I just think that's dirty. Why didn't they ever do that? They never even thought about doing that in your day, did they? Well, they would ice us, and I, I, none of us mind being iced, but you, you shouldn't allow the guy to kick it. You, you can't sit there because you know what's coming. This is a game they play. I just think that's wrong. Anyway, that's, that's yeah. my two cents okay. there. I think, you know, every every position, clearly, uh, there's a lot of pressure, quarterbacks and receivers. But I think the, the thing about kickers, it's it's plus or minus. It's good or not. It's win or lose. And everybody knows it. And, you know, and you carry that. I, I think, um, unfortunately, there, there are names that I don't want to necessarily name whose careers are tied to misses that is unfair for them. And... I go back to Billy Buckner booting the ball in the Boston Red Sox game. You know, as good as he was for 16 or 17 years, that's what you remember him for. And unfortunately, that's the risk that comes with the position. But you get a chance to impact the outcome of the game. I mean, well, how cool is that? When you get called on, you get a chance to bail out your teammates. And, man, that is awesome. So I think from a psychological point of view, you have to go in there and I think we all work hard at it to look at the upside and, and, you know, deal with the downside when it happens, but it's an opportunity and, and you got to enjoy the, enjoy the moment. Speaking of kickers who have one miss on their legacy, uh, we won't mention names, but the last kicker who was a world-class skier um, is now in the hall of fame as well. Kicked in the middle of the country, kicked in Missouri. When are you in the hall of fame? No, I'm not a hall of fame guy. I'm, I'm just grateful. I got to play here, uh, at, at a time when when I got to play, I mean, I got to play with extraordinary guys, great great teammates, you know, wonderful coach who redefined offensive football, and Coach Coriel and and Dan Fouts just kind of rewriting the record books, and and in a community that loved its team. I just and and so I was going to be here the rest of my life. When I was when my career was over, I was uh, you know, I could have gone and played other places and decided no, I wanted to stop right now and get on with my life. And out of that came legacy health strategies and the chance to build patient support programs for medical device and pharmaceutical companies and engage closely with the patients who go on these products and, and help them uh, get the life back that I had mine uh, returned to. And so it's very, very rewarding for me. Thank you, Rolf. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow, the producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. 